Hello and welcome to another episode of But Where Are You From? A podcast by Be Seen, Britain's East and Southeast Asian Network. I am your host, Mayan, and I've got COVID, um, which isn't as bad as you might think. Uh, it's my second time round, so not my first time at the rodeo. And yeah, I've been very lucky to have pretty mild symptoms. I mean, I was able to work the whole time. And I mean, I hate going outside and seeing people anyway, so it's not been too bad. Although at the time of recording, it's now been many, many days and even I am starting to feel the itch. Um, So I am looking forward to going outside. Um, But yeah, enough about that. I had the pleasure of interviewing the MP for Luton North, Sarah Owen, who is an absolutely formidable woman, to be honest. And I've had the pleasure of knowing Sarah since the beginning of Be Seen, really. She's kind of a major part of the reason why we were able to sort of get our voices heard in the first place. Like, she's been such a an OG supporter of us, and she's always taken the time to listen and be involved in our events and share things and you know, really take our issues to to the cabinet office, to different departments in government. We owe a lot to her, really. But today was a really nice opportunity to actually get to know her a bit better outside of all that. Um, And one thing that really struck me about the conversation that we had was that she's so, so comfortable in her own skin. And she did say that that's kind of one of the key critical elements that you need to have if you want to get into any kind of public facing politics you have to be really comfortable with who you are because inevitably do you get a lot of shit for being so public facing especially as a woman so yeah it was just really nice to talk to her about how she leans into all these different parts of her heritage and not even just kind of her cultural heritage and her ethnic heritage but she was also talking a lot about how she has like a proper politics background she has you know she was surrounded by labor politics ever since she was a kid and she was talking about her granddad being out on campaigns until the age of like 90 and it was only you know health that that really stopped him from doing that and i just think that's amazing i think it's um yeah, I think it's it's it was so lovely to speak to her about the things that really make her tick and I think she's um anyone who's seen Sarah speak in public will know that she's a really inspirational person and that sounds really cliche but listening to Sarah give a speech is a roller coaster of emotions. I mean she'll have you crying and then laughing one minute. Um she's a very very relatable human being so yeah, I very much enjoyed our discussion. And um, yeah, it was quite nice to hear her just give a bit of insights on what it's really like, you know, being an MP. And her day sounds so ridiculously busy. But yeah, the amount of shit that she has to deal with. Um, but also, like, just talking about really funny little things like being hangry when it's like time for business questions or whatever. Um, but, you know, I also. I do remember that she has shared some really horrible things with us in the past as well. Like I remember during the the historical debate that she tabled in October 2020 in Parliament, the first ever of its kind about racism against East and Southeast Asian communities in the UK. And she talked about her experiences with racism, which were extremely touching really really poignant not just because it was a horrible you know the things that she described were quite traumatizing but also because I think that a lot of us could see echoes of our own experience and just hear that being talked about in public in a on a parliamentary platform was really monumental and quite validating but you know she she described some horrible things like you know, being in high school and 
having another student come in with a knife and threaten her because she didn't like it when race is mixed. And to me, I mean, when I heard that, I was just absolutely, I felt absolutely disgusted, um, especially as a mixed person myself. And it's had me thinking quite a lot recently about mixedness and about how much things are changing. That is really important, is that things are changing, but we haven't just immediately solved the problem of racism by mixing. Can you hear those birds? There's loads of birds outside just tweeting away. It's quite nice, really, but I don't know if it's interfering with the um, with the audio. It's morning, and I'm, I'm just about to start work, so I'm just recording this um, before I start my daily tasks. And there's lots of birds tweeting away in the background, and um, it's quite a nice way to get into a Monday, really. Um, anyway, where was I? Back to racism. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about mixedness and about how maybe even kind of 20 years ago, it was definitely more of a no-no to have people from different ethnic backgrounds mixing, producing children, and you know people who were growing up in the 70s and 80s faced a lot more racism and their parents probably faced a lot more criticism as well for, for having mixed children than the mixed people um, or the, the people who are having mixed children today. But I think that just is what makes me even more weary, not weary, that's not the word, wary, <laughs> fuck's sake, it's Monday. Um, that's what makes me even more wary, I think, is that it's not that long ago that mixedness was really demonized and now it's like really celebrated like everyone wants the world to be a big united colors of benetton advert um which is not going to solve the problem of racism we all know that um but mixedness is kind of generally seen as really trendy now but the um the kind of the sous-entendu the subtext is always that when someone says oh you're mixed race people will usually understand that that means mixed black and white And that's kind of seen as the default trend and it's cool. And other than, you know, all of the anti-blackness and colorism that that implies, it also just has the effect of making mixed people feel like they're a trend that ultimately could be disposable. And that's something that I'm always just really wary of is that like mixed belonging in certain spaces that are coded by um you know by race is conditional and when uh, we never know what kind of socio-cultural change is around the corner that means that those conditions change and everything goes south um i think we like uh, i've been thinking a lot about the the term white passing and how much I dislike it, I mean, I never use it myself um, to talk about other people, to talk about, you know, how somebody presents, because the language of it imposes such a, it imposes a set of rules that I think are complete bollocks, to be honest. Like, to me, white passing suggests that because whiteness is the default and because whiteness is the sort of bar of what is acceptable and palatable it's an attainable um it's it's like an achievement and it's something that mixed people are striving to in order to be able to get away with passing like shh don't tell anyone like can't give away our identities because otherwise they'll find out that we're not really white and they won't let us be in the club anymore like it's it's just, it's just ridiculous when you think about it it's like white passing it, it just suggests that we're all out here like masquerading as white and for fear of being detected um just yeah I, I, it's almost like quite a violent phrase um I've, it makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable so i've been thinking about alternatives and i guess the thing recognizing that it's still 
not without issue, but I, I have been preferring to use the term racialized as white because it very much puts the onus of um cons- the, the, well it first of all acknowledges that race is a is a construct but it also puts the onus of that perception and the judgment and the categorization on the person who's doing the viewing like on the beholder the the eye of the beholder is that what i'm trying to say yeah, I'm basically saying that it puts the kind of um, it puts the accountability on the person who's doing the perceiving, and not on the person who's being judged and looked at. It kind of stops them from being such a passive, no, being an active object. Wait, I don't even know what I'm saying. But basically, yeah, I feel like white passing puts just too much emphasis on the people who are mixed, suggesting that they are kind of behaving in a certain way to try and get away with being white and that makes me uncomfortable um so yeah I've been thinking about that a lot recently and I I was lucky to talk to Sarah about this and she's so open about her heritage and she loves being mixed and she loves kind of celebrating both sides of her you know of her of her cultural identity you know her Chinese Malaysian side and her white British side and you know, we both talked about how lovely it is to be able to to finally have the language and the confidence to be able to do that. And that's certainly not something that I felt like I could do when I was younger. Um, I definitely could have had like, you know, I could have done with a Sarah as a role model when I was younger. So yeah, we had a really lovely chat. And um, I think that we got down into some pretty serious details. Um, But we also talked about food and we talked about families and um yeah it was really lovely I felt I came away from the conversation feeling so humbled and like had that really nice warm fuzzy feeling in my stomach although that might have been covid who knows um so yeah hope you enjoy and I hope that I haven't distracted you too much with my rambling um I'm almost out of isolation now so I'm actually quite looking forward to going for a little walk um But yeah, I'm going to love you and leave you. This episode was brought to you by the blood, sweat and tears of the Be Seen team. So if you like what we do, please, 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 if you're a Spotify user, just go and give us a little five star rating on the app because um, it really helps with, I don't know, the algorithm or some shit. Um, And if you're an Apple podcast user, then a review is always, always welcome there as well. Um, That really helps. And finally, if you appreciate what we do and you want to sling us even just a tiny bit of coin, you can go onto our coffee page, which is ko-fi.com forward slash B-E-S-E-A-N. Thank you very much and enjoy this episode of But Where Are You From? Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Hi, man. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you for coming. It's uh, such a such a privilege. Um, how are you? How are you feeling out of ten today? I'm gonna say I'm about a six or a seven. I'm quite tired. We had our Eastern Southeast Asians for Labour dinner last night. Oh, late finish. Um, and I did also dance with Chinese Elvis. So uh, <laughs> I feel a little bit tired. And a little bit sore, yeah. That sounds so fun. Um, I'm I'm about a six, I, I reckon, which is pretty good going because I've got COVID. <gasps> I didn't realise. Oh no. Yeah, but it's okay because um, it's uh, I had OG COVID like back in 2020, so this is not my first time at the rodeo, and uh, it's pretty mild, all things considered. So I think I've got my vaccine to thank for that. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Um, antibodies yeah and if you so if you hear like you know snot <laughs> at any point that's uh, that's why but I've got I'm fired up on that lemsip which um in addition to tiger balm is like my mum's answer to absolutely every ailment ever oh did you ever have that really herbally kind of concoction that was just really a weird savory herbal concoction whenever you were ill 
I used to have, um, so my mum, when I was a teenager, my mum used to make me go to a Chinese herbalist who used to give me a special tea. And it honestly, it, it was like, I mean, to me, it just looked like, I don't know, twigs and bits of dirt and, and, and mushrooms and stuff. So it was just like kind of brown mulch and it tasted so horrible. That's just, it scarred me for life when I think about special teas and stuff like that. My mum used to send me off, like you couldn't really be ill off school. It would be packed off with like, you would have paracetamol and then you'd have whatever Chinese kind of like herbal concoction. So you'd just be like, oh, okay, I'm bunged up and I have all of these things going on in my body now as well, cracking. Yeah. Um, but then, oh, you no. know, I'm here. I'm clinging on to my last year of my 30s. She's got me this far. So happy day. <laughs> Thanks, mum. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, we were never allowed to miss school ever. Like just, I, I could just there's just no way, you know. I would, I would never be able to get away with, uh, with even faking it. Or even if I was actually really ill, it would just be, oh, have a sip, have some tiger balm. That was <laughs> it. <laughs> um, okay, so as you probably know from the name of the podcast, there is a question that we ask everybody, um, and you are free to answer it however you like. And that question is, but where are you from? Ah, I am from, I, I wanted to say something really childish, <laughs> that's where oh. I initially go, so like when people do that they go, but yeah where are you from, but where are you from, I eventually get to my mum's tummy, <laughs> and they go, yeah but where's your mum from, <laughs> oh. so yeah. I'm originally born in Hastings on the south coast of England. Um, my mum's Malaysian. Um, my dad's white British. Um, good mix and of cultures and identities. And like, um, and my mum's side of the family, my grandma's Nonya. My granddad was Singaporean, Chinese descendants. So it is a proper mix. And I just love it. Absolutely love it. And it was difficult I think growing up when I was younger in a predominantly white town um but some of the conversations that I've had recently um particularly about being mixed race is that we haven't really addressed the additional barriers or the different barriers that I think people of mixed race kind of have to confront and deal with um and it it's not always a comfortable conversation because I think sometimes even within your own cultures that you belong to there are there are also problems there as well so yeah whenever somebody says where you come from if I keep going like I just give them normal answers but I am I'm from Luton now that's home that's home for me that's home for my little one and um yeah and I love it I absolutely love it because in my maiden speech I was really super pregnant like I looked back I was like I don't even know how I managed to stand up off the green bed (laughs) um but I, I described that my little girl was going to be just like Luton which is a little mix of all of the cultures together and I'm just so happy and proud to she's going to be growing up as a Lutonian with that rich cultural diversity around her she's going to be so lucky so yeah I think I've, I've spoken about this before that you know we're not just our heritage we are also made by the people around us and I grew up in Southeast London and I was surrounded. I was so lucky to be surrounded by lots of people from different backgrounds. You know, I had, I went to school in a predominantly South Asian part of London. Um, I, you know, had a really, I was really lucky, especially in my, um, in my sixth form college to have a really diverse, you know, student body, lots of different people from different backgrounds and, like you I also love being mixed but it's definitely something that I have only really found the language to explore celebrate interrogate even in the last few years it's not something that I was I think fully able to talk about and to unpack when I was younger because of well your various reasons but it was a source of a lot of confusion and I think that people just don't realize sometimes how much of an identity crisis that simple question but where are you you know where are you really from like where are you from from it it can really just it can really destabilize people even for people who come from white backgrounds you know I have a friend who 
she's both her parents are white English but she grew up in Dubai and then she's lived most of her adult life well since uni she's lived in Scotland that's where she's raising her kids and you know she doesn't feel like she can say that she's Scottish but she also doesn't really feel English because she's never really lived there and yeah it's just we are so much more than the sum of our parts so to speak you know we're 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 made up from so many different influences so I love what you said about your little girl being a Lutonian and I think one of the things that's like links to that question what people actually mean is what are you yes which is like so offensive and they're thinking that it's a polite way of basically saying what are you yeah and there is no polite way to say what are you because we are not yeah yeah and people have said that to me before you know what are you like my, my, I've been called, my sister's also been called a mongrel before, which I think is just, it's horrible, really. And people don't realise how horrible that is. No, it, they, I don't think they do. And, but I also think that for some people who can't or, or don't know how to find the right language to talk about being mixed race, or it's because we don't actually necessarily have a space, safe space to talk about it ourselves. Yeah. Or we, they don't, so some people, if they want to find out, haven't got the language in a, to enable them to have that conversation in a, a respectful manner. Mm. Um, and I'm always keen that, like, we just never give up on people. Um, I always have hope that people will be able to learn to do better and that I will always learn to do better as well. So, yeah, it's, it's a journey. I think we're starting at a lower base in this country than... I think perhaps a lot of other places are in terms of East and Southeast Asian cultural identity as well. So Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I love that it's so clear from the way that you speak publicly, the way that you speak in the commons and the way that you conduct yourself in online spaces that you've got a very, very people focused approach to not just to your work, but to everything that you do. And I think that shines through. So oh. without... <laughs> no, no nice that you say that because I think like that's the reason why I came across is people I really love people I'm never happier than like when I come off the doorstep everyone's a bit like you want to knock on more doors I'm like yes I do uh, <laughs> because people just make the job otherwise it could be a really miserable place if you're just sat opposite Boris Johnson who's like not telling you the truth um and you want to bang your head against the desk like going yeah. out and seeing people that's the best bit So for those of you listeners who don't know, I'm going to uh, just give a brief overview of Sarah and what an amazing person she is. uh, And then we'll we'll dive into some of the other questions that um, I've been kind of burning. I've really wanted to ask you. Um, First of all, it's such an absolute privilege to speak with you today. I know that you've literally just come out of business questions and uh, you're currently sat on the floor of the whips office squeezing me in. So just wanted to say thanks for making space for Be Seen in your really busy schedule, as you always do. And speaking of busy, you're a woman of many, many talents. So in addition to being the MP for Luton North, you are also the Shadow Minister for the Department of Leveling Up Housing and Communities. You are chair of the group East and Southeast Asians for Labour, and you're a member of the APPGs for Adult Social Care, Baby Loss, Hate Crime, Kashmir and Perpetrators of Domestic Abuse. You speak up tirelessly for your communities, particularly those from ethnic minority backgrounds in your constituency and in the interests of ECs throughout the UK. You've been extremely outspoken about racism, both in the UK at large and within government itself. And you've done extremely valuable work to raise issues of domestic abuse, bereavement leave and support for people who've suffered miscarriages and mental health. Of particular note is that you brought about the historic first of its kind parliamentary debate on racism against people of East and Southeast Asian heritage. And you're basically like an OG supporter of BC from the beginning and a really big reason of why we're where we are today. And I particularly enjoyed a recent speech that you gave on the first day of Lunar New Year, where you demanded a big red envelope for the people of Britain who are about to see costs of living skyrocket. Um, What have I missed? Oh, yeah. And also, you're probably the coolest MP on TikTok. Or maybe the only MP on TikTok. (laughs) Ara is definitely cooler than me on TikTok. She is so cool on TikTok. (laughs) 
Or how's that all been going? Well, um, first of all, I'm really, really excited to have been asked to come on today. Um, and the work that you and everyone at B-Scene has done has just been so, so important. And from the moment of meeting you all in the middle of a pandemic, I just knew. And you know how difficult it is to get a feel from somebody via Zoom? I got yeah. it straight from, from all of you. And the way that you all conducted yourself in terms of like putting arguments towards the the minister like it was difficult for them to to go any other place other than actually self-reflect um and so it is huge that I think we have seen the last two years um a real movement across all of our community um to really tackle the problem of racism but I think it is really really striking that the majority of that movement and those organisations, BC and some of the other ones, End the Virus of Racism, for example, headed up by women. Yeah. Because crossover, I think, in kind of racism directed at us, there's a huge level of misogyny as well. Um, so I'm anything I can do to support BC, um, I will continue to do always. In terms of those jobs, and I couldn't believe that it's been two years um, so it was my little girl's birthday last week. She was two years old. And every, my colleagues that came in with me in 2019 were just like, I can't believe it because I just remember you just being this round ball of pregnancy. And I can't believe she's like a walking, talking, chatting two-year-old now. And all of us had to hit the ground running because there was a leadership contest going on at the same time that we were elected. Literally, no one was like, everyone was like completely focused on that they weren't that interested in the 20 something group of us that had just bumbled in and gone wow what do we do how do we start um and we all bonded together and have all supported each other throughout the last two years and it's a really close-knit group and I'd say that I think without all of us supporting each other and you'll note that there's quite a few of the 2019 intake that are now on the front front bench or are PPSs we all support and celebrate each other's kind of wins and support each other when it's tough as well. Yeah. Um, and it is, there are more women in that group um, and it's the most diverse group intake that, that we've ever had. Um, and I think that's pretty telling in the way that how we have kind of bonded together. And there are people within the political spectrum of Labour within that group as well. And regardless of where they are and regardless of where you are, you know that you've got a safe space. And so I don't think you do it alone, not at all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I love what you said about, about women and what really they can achieve, what we can achieve when we lift each other up. And I think we, we de- we've certainly seen that with Be Seen. I mean, we didn't intentionally set out to make an all, you know, an, a, a group that was just run by women, but it's just the way that it happened. And I think because of uh, most, you know, we've all got a very high level of, I guess, emotional intelligence and empathy. And because we had really similar experiences, we were really able to just kind of make space for each other to share and be vulnerable, I think. And actually the community building came from that. I think that you can't, you can't just build stuff without already having established like a relationship of trust and, and, and vulnerability and openness really. And do you ever, sometimes I like, do you ever get when, um, I don't know, you just get this really like warm, fuzzy feeling being surrounded by women. And sometimes I want to be, sometimes I literally just want to like get all the women in the world and just put them in one place and just like be together and just, you know, you just feel so uplifted by seeing other people thrive. And I think it's so important for people to see someone like you, um, somebody, you know, you're the first female MP with, um, with EC Heritage. And you're one of only two MPs in the Commons who have EC Heritage, which is just, it's just shocking, really. And I think it's so important for people to see somebody like you, not only a woman, not only somebody who has mixed heritage, but also you know, somebody, you said yourself, you're in your last year of your 30s. That's really young for an MP, considering that, you know, we're kind of used to seeing basically old white men dominating the political field in our country. So, yeah, I think that it's it's an amazing time. It's a really 
disruptive time and there's loads of shit happening and sometimes it can feel like things are, are looking quite bleak but I also think that you know there's just some there's some really massive kind of cataclysmic shifts coming in the future I think and I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens um so yeah you actually kind of touched a little bit on this but I, I would like to go into a little bit in more detail about how you became an MP because you've got you've know, got trade union background, I know that you've worked um, within the NHS before and also for the fire service, if I'm not mistaken. So how did you, how did you come to where you are now? Like why, why politics? Um, I think politics had always been a bit of a, a background figure for me, but not from my parents, from my grandparents. So mum and dad, dad was a firefighter, mum was a nurse and they worked a lot of shifts um and dad would also like do lorry driving would do window cleaning as well to make extra money um and so but my grandparents were hugely political so they were lifelong labor party members um up until their 90s so about three years ago they still had um campaign committee rooms coming out of their house at elections um my granddad had like an angina attack delivering leaflets in the 97 election um they wouldn't force me to be labor there would have been some questions if I wasn't (laughs) um and there would have been some serious debate but they put like grandma especially would make me watch prime minister's questions and the news and she'd say like you need to understand this because women fought for your your right to vote and for your right to have have a say and they also remembered what it was like in a time before the NHS there were the rare kind of and unfortunately less so um members of our community who did and um so when I wasn't hugely like active in the Labour Party until I went to university and I was going on the um demonstrations against the war in Iraq and a a Labour councillor I came home and a Labour councillor knocked on my door and said oh I know your grandparents why you know why do you remember the Labour Party? A, he'd woken me up really early. Wasn't happy with that. Two, the party was doing something that I fundamentally disagreed with. And so I had this debate with him on the doorstep. And he said, well, like, if you don't like it, you get involved and you change it. He said, there's no, like, your, your voice isn't doing much outside right now. And I said, well, that's not true. I've gone on a demo. He went, yeah, but you could do that as a member of the Labour Party because there are members of the Labour Party that also attended that demo. And so I did. I signed up right there and then. And I didn't go to a meeting. My first thing was not to go to a meeting. Like, I beg anyone, if you join a political party, don't care which one it is, do not go to a meeting first because it's just weird. Go out on the doorstep first. Um, And that's what I did. And I went out on the doorstep with the councillor that I'd had the argument with. And I saw him giving information about how to get an NHS dentist to a family that had just moved in I saw him answering questions about planning or bids and it wasn't particularly glamorous but these were the things that people needed support with and I could see how important that was and so I carried on just doing I did do some of those meetings um but like just doing the grassroots side of politics the leafleting the door knocking getting to know people and then um When I was at uni, I became a care worker going into people's homes. So domiciliary care would either clean somebody's house or I would give them personal care, feed them, those sorts of things. I really enjoyed it. Um, Obviously, you weren't meant to have favourites, but obviously I had favourites. People that you just love spending time with. Um, And I had this one incident where this woman... I was covering, I turned up at her house and I was only allotted like 15, 20 minutes with her. And she was just in such a bad state. There was no way that I was going to leave her. And I knew on my call list, I had somebody who I always had next, which was somebody I was just, I literally cleaned their house. I just vacuumed their house for them. And so I just thought I'm going to take my time. And I phoned the management and they didn't answer. And then they kept phoning, kept phoning, kept phoning me while I was working and the manager of this care company, she said, all petal. And she was this French woman. And I remember she used to smoke these really thin cigarettes. And she called all of us petal because she didn't know our names. 
And she said, but Petal, if you're late for your next one, they're private and you'll be losing us a lot of money. And I said, I, I don't care. Um, this woman needs physical care now and I'm not going to leave her and I'm going to do my job. And that's when I think my politics and all that I had learned from my grandparents and all that I had seen on the doorsteps as a Labour member married with my personal experience then of a system that was entirely broken. There is absolutely no reason why somebody who is paying for care should get better care than somebody who needed the care right there and then. And I thought to myself, yes, I could do that because I was in a privileged position of that not being my main income. I was a student um, and I could roll the dice of being like, well, you want to discipline me for doing the right thing? Go for it. But I also knew that it's, it needed a bigger system change. And for me, that change is politics. And politics is often seen as a dirty word and it shouldn't be because it's just about change. Well, it's also um, everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's everything. It absolutely touches everything. Mm. Um, and so I just got more and more involved. Um, and I was working, my first job was in the fire brigades, did emergency planning, which I didn't realise would stand me in such good stead for the last two years in terms of taking difficult decisions. So I used to, and it was, I do, I did do admin um, for a lot of it. And I would be sat in meetings where you'd have really high level people from the police, from the environment agency, from ambulance some of the army came and did some of like decontamination exercises with us. But I remember a really striking conversation where they were talking about how many bodies we would, would be too much if we had a SARS pandemic and what we would have to do with them in London. And the emergency plan was that they would be stored in Hyde Park or some big park in London. And I just remember this so vividly because I was in my early twenties. You're like, you come out of uni, you're like, yay, life's brilliant. I'm going to actually earn some money. <laughs> um yeah no they were talking about mass burials um and it wasn't oh like god wasn't cheeriest of jobs but it gave me a really good insight into like the difficult decisions and the possibilities of something going horribly wrong in the way that it has done in the last two years yeah um but I'd always wanted to work in politics and I kept trying I kept trying for jobs and I kept getting turned away um because I hadn't done an internship and I fundamentally disagree with working for free. It goes against everything I believe in. So I just said, well, I'm not, I can't afford to work for free. I don't want to work for free. Um, if somebody has done an internship and they kept saying, well, we know you could do the job. You just haven't done it. Which is possibly the most frustrating thing that you could possibly hear. Um, and then I eventually went for an organizer job and I got that. And it was a much better fit than me working in this place uh, in my early twenties. Um, because it was about people and campaigns and doing things and organisation. And then I worked in local government, which gave me a better understanding of how local government works. And then I went into kind of policy with Ed Miliband on the living wage um, and was always active in the trade union as well. Um, and then I stood, I, I, I stood for election in what was then my hometown, and I was a candidate for four years, which is a really, really long time to be a candidate. Doing your normal job. You're essentially an unpaid kind of shadow MP. Um, doing hustings, doing TV, doing radio. And it was such good grounding for me. And I learned so much about who I was and also what kind of politician I wanted to be and the sort of team I would want around me. Um, but it is really devastating to lose an election. It's like being dumped by like tens of thousands of people publicly. Um, and it had taken over my life. Like I remember the next day going, what do I do? What do I dress as? I remember getting out like my, <laughs> my um, skinny kind of cut off jean shorts that had been put away because a candidate doesn't wear those. I was like reclaiming myself and that was quite nice but I had lost a good four years of friendships and not always being present and I think whenever people say they want to put themselves forward I am very clear there are huge positives and that is the change that you can make there are also some personal payoffs that you will have and it's not just you that loses out it's the people around you as well so it is a big responsibility um there are big positives 
but it's not without a struggle. Yeah. Oh man, what you said about how it feels to lose an election and getting dumped by tens of thousands of people. I mean, that's pretty much how I felt after the last couple of elections and a Brexit referendum. You know, I was really, I actually felt like I was going through a breakup for a long time afterwards. It just, it just kind of sits with you like this horrible dark cloud, doesn't it? Um, so I do, I mean, I feel like we always feel like we have to talk about racism but it is basically the reason that you and I have, have come to know each other. And I also feel that um, it's important to talk about as a person who has, um, you know, political and, and public presence like you do, because it, it does, it helps people not feel alone. Um, but yeah, what is it, what's it like being a woman in the commons, being um, a young woman in the commons uh, being woman of color, I mean, you know, people. I, I, th- I think people don't really get just how much abuse female MPs receive, particularly female MPs of color. I think it, Diane Abbott has received the majority. She's she's received more abuse than any other MP out of all of the MPs in the Commons. I think. Um, so, if if it's okay with you, could you talk about that a bit? Absolutely. So, I think Diane Abbott and Dawn Butler get so much horrific abuse Naz Shah also gets horrific abuse and the abuse isn't just abuse about who they are it's like death threats rape threats it is horrific and it is that layer again of misogyny plus racism like the two often aren't that far apart which is why you're seeing women of colour in any public sphere getting much more abuse or being held to a different standard to anybody else Um, I am fairly lucky in the fact that I don't well I do get I do get stuff to be honest but I get it from both sides um at the beginning of the pandemic I was sent things like of 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 people eating live animals um or I get accused so either I get accused of that or I get accused of being a member of the CCP or I get um accused completely the other side which is you're a traitor to your own kind of heritage because I've criticised the Chinese government on Xinjiang, on Hong Kong um, and um, also like because it's the mixed race element as well which adds another layer so there was this person who tweeted Lisa Nandy had put out her team her new shadow team for levelling up and somebody tweeted afterwards going oh that looks like great but oh isn't it really awful it's just all white I'm like, hello, we're here. Mm. Me, Lisa and Andy, we're here. Or are we not, you know, enough? Yeah. And I don't think that person meant it, but it, you know, it's like having to restate again who we are and why we exist. Um, And that's really frustrating. I think in the chamber, like three months ago, I was really shocked. So like Alan Mack and I don't have a huge amount of communication despite us both bips. Like we did say happy new year to each other um, this week, but that's about the extent of our conversations. Um, but he was sat and given that there's like two of us out of what, 650, he was sat opposite me in his whips position on the front bench. And I was on the other side in my whips position. And Jacob Rees-Mogg was stood at the dispatch box and out of nowhere started using the phrase yellow peril. And I was fuming and did my job as a whip though and raised it, raised it as an issue. And the response I got was, oh, he wouldn't have meant it like that. It was, he's referring to a a colour. And I was like, "Uh, no, that's, I'm really sorry. That's another layer of you not understanding the, the, the history behind this phrase. And so Thangham, the shadow leader, she raised a point of order and made him apologise. But in his apology, he said he basically didn't know. Now, somebody who professes to be that intelligent and that kind of historically um, researched and have really good education, like maybe his parents need their money back if he didn't know what that meant. And the coincidence of him saying it at the dispatch box at the same time that both Alan Mack and I are there 
I just don't think that's 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 coincidence, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, it's subconscious for him, but I was in his eye line. I was right there in front of him. And so we've got a lot of learning to do um, to make this a much more kind of safe, attractive space for, for people to, to, to work in. Um, and it's sometimes very tiring to con- constantly have to fight harder for your voice to be heard for your ideas to be recognized and receive as much credit as a man's yeah even last year and I think this one's more age and gender than it is race or like this MP just turned around and was like he was just sat next to me for 20 minutes talking to other MPs who knew me and this guy just turned around and went so who do you work for because oh, he assumed that you weren't an MP, he assumed that you were an assistant or something. <sighs> yeah. Jesus. And it's not just about like what gets said publicly or in the commons or whatever, but it's also like, you know, what happens when people think that no one's watching. And I know that you have, you know, you addressed this in the debate. You mentioned that, you know, there were conservative uh, party members who had said some appalling things um, uh, talking about people of Chinese heritage and that debate. I mean, I, I still remember so well. I mean, I was like, we were all, me and the, the, B-Scene, uh, the B-Scene girls were all texting each other while we were listening to it, just like bawling our eyes out because, you know, it just felt so, I can't even explain how validating it felt to hear somebody just talking about that kind of stuff in, in in public in on you know in a, on a parliamentary platform and to hear you talk about your experiences but also to hear you give voice to the experiences of people not just in your constituency but all over the UK was just monumental thinking you know at last there's someone who has someone who is listening to us um you know you mentioned Alan Mack I don't have anything in common with Alan Mack, really, apart from, you know, having similar, similar heritage. Um, and you really are, you know, a kind of a trailblazer in that respect for, for the EC community. Um, and I'm shocked to hear of some of the things that people have said and done to you. Um, it, it's, it's appalling. And it's, I suppose, it's particularly sad because it's, you know, it's, it's even more, than ever and now it's quite dangerous time to be an MP as we've seen um you know really tragically over the last few years um but yeah I mean when you see Boris Johnson like deliberately try and fan those flames to the extent that Keir Starmer David Lammy and Angie Smith are like bundled away by people that are shouting the same abuse that Boris Johnson had done and they were holding a noose in their hands. Like we are literally months after an MP was stabbed to death. Yeah. It's just grim. Yeah. And, you know, we, without, without sugarcoating it, <clears throat> we live in kind of bleak times, politically speaking. Um, years of austerity measures are to blame for 130,000 preventable deaths, according to an article published in The Guardian in 2019. We're seeing the real life implications of Brexit on a daily basis uh, in you know, price rises of goods, for example. And that is obviously not to mention the hike in national insurance, energy prices and rising inflation. And we have a government that refuses point blank to recognise the inherent corruption, cronyism, ableism and racism embedded very deep within our social system. But it's not all doom and gloom. Um, one of the positive things that often comes out of suffering is solidarity movements and community organising. And we have seen rapid growth among groups of people who have East and Southeast Asian heritage who are politically engaged, they're fed up about the situation, particularly when it comes to racism and ethnic disparities. So I guess my question is, do you have advice or any nuggets of wisdom for people of EC heritage who might be interested in getting into politics, who, you know, who might be put off by the challenges that they will inevitably face um, and, and, you know, it, it can be off-putting. It, it can. There are going to be days, and I'm sure you have them too, where you just think, "God, everything is really bleak right now." Yeah, and I would say to anybody who's kind of thinking about 
being in politics there are lots of different ways of being politically active um whenever I go to schools for example where they're doing graphics or graphic design um I will say to them you can work in politics you can find a job that marries and matches your political values because we need political advisors we need comms people we need policy people we don't just need politicians and councillors and peers um but if you want to go to the public kind of facing role make sure you are happy within yourself and that you have a good support network around you and that you reach out as much as you possibly can to people. It is not a weakness to say, do you know what? The trolls have got me today. And to just turn it off and be with your family. Um, Because you wouldn't, if somebody just came into your house and started shouting at abuse, you'd be like, you need to leave now. So why would you allow them the access to you to shout that abuse to you via a screen you shouldn't you can just just turn it off you have that control I know it's really hard and sometimes I really want to like tweet respond or like copy what I've been sent and go look at this this is horrific um but I really really refrain from doing that because it actively like research has shown it actively encourages people to to do that more um, so I try not to do that. And it's really hard. It's sometimes counterintuitive for somebody like myself who just wants to really take it on head on. Um, and also to know it's not just it's not just for you, like have really good allies around you and have a really good supportive team if you want to go into politics. And when I say supportive, I don't mean people that are just going to tell you everything's wonderful and that you're doing great. People that are going to give you honest, constructive criticism. Um, and help you get into a better place with what you need to do or what you want to do and what you want to achieve yeah do do MPs get like do you get like media training to teach you how to deal with those difficult situations not really so sometimes we get um, time with some of the press team to do a little bit briefing back and forward Um, but trade unions are massively important in kind of being able to give people skills as well. So one of the things I used to do when I worked at Trade Union was with the London Sisters, we had a a public speaking kind of programme, which was completely free for any of the women members that wanted to join. And it was, I think it was two, three weeks. And it was not just for people who wanted to do like presenting or like standing up and doing a big speech. It was also about like how you assert yourself in a meeting. And... I just cried when I saw some of them and not just like speaking, they just nailed it. They knocked it out of the park. You would never have known that they were nervous. They owned it. They owned their space. They owned what they were saying. And it was just beautiful to watch. And I think if particularly women, but it's ESCA people as well, if they just knew how much power they had in their voice and in democracy, in, in, in the ability to change things for the better, we wouldn't second guess ourselves. Like Boris Johnson gets up every Wednesday and never second guesses himself. Yeah. We need to channel, we basically need to channel like entitled white man energy is what you're saying. A little bit Like, it eats me up alive when I think, oh, I could have said something a little bit better Mm. or I could have said something different or was that interpreted the wrong way? Like it eats me up. And sometimes I have to go to an external person, whether it's my friends or whether it's like my partner or whether it's a colleague and go, I did this. Like I just keep running around my head and they go, it doesn't matter. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. So you, yeah, you, I, I do want to talk about that a bit. Cause you mentioned that, you know, if anybody is thinking about going into a public facing role, then, you know, you really have to be happy with yourself. Um, you are clearly somebody who you said earlier, you know, you love being mixed. You've embraced your identity. You love being a Lutonian. Um, you, you know, you love all these different parts of your identity. And you said it's really important to have the support of a network, um, which you have. So, uh, yeah. How do you, you know, on bad days or when you need to look after yourself, what do you do? How do you unwind? How do you have fun? Oh, I eat. that's it the podcast is over we're just gonna talk about food yeah no I eat a lot um so yeah nourishing yourself I think is like it's not just sleep 
but food plays a massive part in it. If I haven't eaten healthily or if I haven't eaten something that I like, oh my God, I'm miserable. Oh, if I've just eaten because I'm hungry and that's the only thing that's there, like, ugh, like, fine, I've done it, whatever. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't nourish your soul. It doesn't nourish kind of your body in the way that it should do. Um, I spend time with, with the little one because I don't get to see her every night. Um, I don't always get to put her to bed. I don't always get to wake up. Um, I am very, very lucky in the fact that um, my partner, he said he would take the career break and he has. And he shouldn't be the exception, but he is. Because no one would think twice if it was the woman that had said, I'm going to oh, stop. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, but he has enabled. So it is a team job, this team. And I think also just being really honest and checking in so I know that I can do I know myself I can do six weeks of like continuous hard graft um and by that I mean working kind of six seven days a week I can do that it's in me but the end of that six weeks like I need to recharge the batteries yeah yeah but it's also about not getting to that stage and learning to say no learning to say no to things um is it's really hard. That's a really hard skill. And I think it's a really hard skill for a woman to have. Yeah. Got some really good advice recently, which was, I can't remember where it came from. I think it was, um, I think it was like a, um, a workshop during EC Heritage Month, but it was no is a complete sentence, which is like groundbreaking. But it's true that you don't, you know, you know, when you say no to things, you feel like you have to justify it in some way. You know, when people ask you to do extra stuff at work, no, I'm really sorry, but I've got this, this and this and this, and it should just be no, nope. I, don't, I can't. Um, but yeah, that is, that is brilliant advice. And I had to have it told to me yesterday by a member of my team. She just said, no, no, that organization shouldn't have access to you in that that way and I was like yeah but the reason why I'm not doing it is because they shouldn't know they don't need to know the reason why yeah absolutely <laughs> I love what you said about food as well like have you ever um have you ever like been hangry in the commons <laughs> now just now really hangry um so um <coughs> I was expecting business questions to be a bit later but because the way the parliament works, it really depends on the number of speakers on like debates or urgent questions before. So you can never really guess like to the to the um, minute when something's going to start or finish. So I thought, oh, great, I'll go and get some breakfast. And it was like five minutes before business questions starts. So I was like, right, I can't get breakfast. Um, I went into the chamber and like they were giving some shocking answers to some stuff where normally I'd be a bit like, Rrr! whereas I went like full on heckle mode. Oh, um, and you kind of know, like, depending on if the speaker's clocked, it was you. <laughs> or if people were a bit like, oh, it's a bit too much. Um, yeah, so I, it probably affects my heckling in the chamber, which people were just like, oh, you shouldn't do that. But once you're in there and you're confronted with somebody who is, and I can say it because I'm out of the chamber, who is telling a lie or who is deliberately, like avoiding the question in normal life you'd be like mate answer the question or if it was somebody that was your friend that had like had lied to you or if it was in a workplace you would call it out but in the chamber you can't it's bizarre yeah that is such a weird really old and outdated rule isn't it like you can't call somebody you can't say in the in the chamber that somebody's lying like didn't it just happened like last week? Was it Ian Blackford who? And, and it's happened to Dawn Butler in the past. Like it's just it's just wild to me that you can't if somebody is fa you know factually incorrect and they are actually spreading untruths. You're not allowed to say that someone's lying. No, and you have to say you can't say deliberately misled. It was inadvertently misled. Now there are some things in Parliament that I think are a bit weird, but I get mm. why they're there. I do sort of understand some of the rules around like how you address somebody. Yeah. Like for example, it's really strange to go, oh, my right honourable friend or my honourable friend. That sounds antiquated. But I think there is an element of 
if you take away all of that tradition and all of those kind of weird niceties, you're, you will descend into absolute gutter. But the fact that Boris Johnson can come in, tell a lie, repeat a lie, leave, and yet everyone can't go, dude, dude lying. Like, yeah, it's just I mean, odd. You see that in like the presidential debates in US elections. Like it's like watching kids in the playground just like hurling insults at each other. So yeah, I do I do recognize that there is like a decorum to be respected in the chamber. But yeah, I'm sure there's loads of shit that's just like really outdated and weird. Um, yeah, like shoulders are offensive, like women's shoulders. You can't wear something that shows your shoulders. Who knew these were the, oh the most- Shoulders, like- scandalous. Call the village elders. I know. What would they do if they saw a shoulder? Um, I think we've got a long way to go in terms of conversations about professionalism and, yeah, and and double standards when it comes to women and men. Um, So we're almost out of time. So to wrap up, I do want to just talk about some fun stuff. so you mentioned that you love to eat. Um, the last time I saw you, also, you were delivering a speech at one of our events in Chinatown. And I know that you love Chinatown. Um, so have you got some favourite, like, favourite dishes that you like to eat, uh, particularly EC dishes? But also, if there's, you know, I'm, I'm, you know no judgment if you also like a, a really good shepherd's pie. Um, I'm here for it. Yeah, I really... I. I indulge in both sides of my heritage food, like a crispy roast potato. Yes. Mm, oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Drowned possibly in a bit of gravy, but only on the side. So I can control how much like crispiness is soaked into the gravy. Um, definitely dumpling legends for their Shaolong Bao. Um, mm. So there's just like a really happy memory for me when I had just, you know, we'd had, I'm very open about the miscarriages that, um, myself and my partner had experienced before we had our rainbow baby and I had just found out that I was pregnant again trying not to get like overly excited managing loads of feelings mixed feelings and I just remember once I'd had that positive um pregnancy test we'd gone into town and we'd gone in and eaten dumplings and for me I just have like such nice happy memories as well as really tasty food uh, it's just nice and I also I keep seeing like Sadiq Khan gets to go there and make like dumplings. There's always pictures around of him making dumplings. I'm like, um, <laughs> dumplings and eat the dumplings, please. Um, and then where else did I go recently? I went to see in our restaurant because I really wanted to like proper. I wanted Malaysian food. Mm. Like I wanted food that I would get when I go home and see the family, and. Oh, I got kind of kuei chow and I really wanted I really wanted a sarsi because it was on the menu and they didn't have any and then their ice machine was broken for the ice kachang so I was like I'm so sad just <laughs> <laughs> like I can see you're really sad <laughs> um but anywhere that basically serves pickled green chilies oh wow I will live for like give me the pickled green chilies there's no point serving me noodles without them um how do you feel about like fusion food because um viv viv's really big into um how am i going to say this experimental congee um and i do remember i mean and usually i kind of give it a bit of the side eye but i do remember she did like uh, roast potatoes as a congee topping and i was actually so there for it i haven't tried it yet but i reckon that could work quite well double carb yeah I mean- carbon carb um I did a reverse fusion congee. So, because I didn't have any rice, I just made porridge. I had like porridge oats. And then I put soy on. I put an egg in the middle. I put crispy onions and some scallion, like some chopped up kind of spring onions. And it works well. I was like, this is good. Um, My friends were like, that is horrific. No, Please no, don't. no, no. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. You've got my interest because it's like, you know, like porridge um, traditionally, like in Scotland. I always used to get told this by my granddad. You know, porridge is eaten with salt, and it's like a savoury thing. So I can now I can see how that would work. 
that did work. It was tasty. But like, you know, if it wants to make carbon carb, I'm here for that too. Yeah. Do you do you? Um, so listen, it's been so lovely to talk to you, Sarah. Um, I'm going to leave you with one parting question. I'm sure you probably already know um, what it is. But are you team rice or team noodle? I am. And I've, I've, I've declared my allegiance. I am team rice. No! But rice life. Okay, fair enough. You haven't had rice. What what if it's what if it's noodles with pickled green chilies? Yeah, no, I'd eat that, but (laughs) I would I would at some stage I would be expecting some rice. Okay, all right, well, fair enough. We'll, have to, we'll just have to agree to disagree. As you said, you know, people, people can have different, you know, political affiliations. We're, you know, we're all still part of the same space. Is there no one in BC that's Team Rice? We're half, we're half Team Rice, half Team Noodle. There's an equal okay. split. So we've got a quite a balanced, quite a balanced mix there. Um, listen, Sarah, it's been so, so, so lovely to chat to you. I'm really grateful. Um, you've given just some really amazing, honest and in-depth answers. And I think people have um, this assumption that, you know, politicians, that you can't have an open and honest conversation with a politician and I'm here to prove them all wrong, damn it. Um, but yes, if people want to follow you or know more about you, where can they find you? So I'm on Twitter, that wonderful, healthy, lovely space called Twitter. Um, I'm at Sarah Owen underscore. I'm on Instagram, which is sometimes features my food choices. Um, I'm on TikTok and I do like, although, man, you said I have like good content. I sometimes think I feel like I've got horrible content. I'm like an old person walking into a club on TikTok. Um, But I'm also on Facebook if you want to go old school. Um, But just always get in touch. Um, If anybody has any questions, kind of like following up this. I will always do my best to answer any questions. Oh, thank you so, so much. This was But Where Are You From? A podcast by Be Seen, Britain's East and Southeast Asian Network. I have been your host, Mayan. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at besea.n at Be Seen or on Twitter at besea underscore n. If you enjoyed this podcast and our work, feel free to sling us some cash via our coffee page, which is ko-fi.com forward slash B-E-S-E-A-N. That's all for now. And I will speak to you next time. Bye.